Turn with me in the Bible to 2 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1. And I want to begin at verse 16, where the Apostle Peter, who you know is very close to the Lord, he says that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Notice that adjective, cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And just for reference, he's speaking about what we now call the transfiguration. Jesus is on the mount. Peter, James, and John is with him. God, the Father, is speaking of Jesus. And we'll read that in a second. Moses and Elijah are there. So this is quite, quite an event. All right, so it says again, verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables, which would be myths, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that's what you want in a court of law. Someone's going to take the stand. They have to have actually witnessed, or usually you want an eyewitness. For he received from God the Father, it's referring to what we know as the transfiguration. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So from 16 to 18, the apostle Peter is sharing a testimony. He says, listen, we weren't just told fairy tales and fables, but we were there. We were eyewitnesses of this event. The voice of the Father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And what's not included in Second Peter is the fact that Moses and Elijah were there. And you have this tremendous event, so much so that Peter just, again, starts talking. Let's build tabernacles. And he doesn't know what to say because they were very afraid as would you be. So he says, he's giving a testimony. He says, we were there. We didn't follow mythological stories of a man pretending to be God or whatever. We were there. But what he says next is of vital importance for all of us. It always has been, but I'll say, especially in the age in which we live. After testifying of what he has seen, he says something that I don't know I've ever heard in a testimony. He says something that is very, very important. After sharing this incredible testimony, he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, what could be more sure than you were an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Jesus, the voice of the Father, triune God, and the appearance of Moses and Elijah, which, by the way, proves that they're alive, not dead. And then he goes on to say, but we have something more sure, even more certain, Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture, this is the more sure word that he's talking about, beyond our personal testimony, beyond what we have seen and experienced, beyond the fact that we didn't follow stories, we were there, we walked with him, we talked with him, and so on. He says, we have something even more certain. And he's going to talk about the scriptures. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, which means he is saying that anything that's written here, of course, he would be referring to the Old Testament. Nothing that is written here was written from the perspective of a man's point of view or their own interpretation of events or what's going to be the future. 
No prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Now here's the verse, verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Now we have the triunity of God. To me, it is amazing that someone who saw what he saw did not rely solely on that. Of course, James and John saw the same thing. Well, they saw many other things too. But under the aegis of the Holy Spirit, we'll write, but we have something even more certain than what we saw. Something more of a foundation than even our own testimony of the things that we saw. And just to say it briefly, that's the scriptures. What a testimony to this book. That's why I titled this sermon, this message here, People of the Book. That's you. Well, presumably it's you. And that's me. People of the book. That's what the apostle is saying here. We are a people of the book. Regardless even of what we saw, and he says we know it to be true because we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. Someone didn't tell us this, and we just kind of made this up. Or these are the myths of the Greek culture. He says we saw this, but he says we have something even more certain than what we experienced. And then he goes on to say this, the scriptures. And he tells us that nothing in the scriptures has ever been written by the mind of man, the will of man. But he says, as we just read, holy men of God spoke or spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say something here now, just in case I forget. I told you I have a personal habit. There is an occasion I, something slips or somebody else slips, doesn't know my habit. I never put anything on top of my Bible. Nothing. Not another book. Only another Bible. This is my personal rule. And I have nothing inside. No church calendars. Nothing. And why do I do that? If I, well, I would do it with any book, but if I find out the wind blew open thing, I have dog ears, I make sure I straighten them out. Because number one, this is God's book. Not man's book. That's what it says here. 2 Peter 1.21. It's God's book. But then I think of the many people who gave their lives trying to transcribe this so we could have a Bible. Wycliffe and others. Burned at the stake, tortured, put in jail by the church. Which again, don't let this surprise you that main persecution initially will begin by the people who say, we're of God. And that's what Jesus faced. That's what the prophets faced. The apostles and so on. And you'll face it too. People with Bibles will tell you this is how it goes. In any case, the statement, people of the book, is from the Muslim community. Been around for quite a while, long while. And there's variations on that theme, people of the book, applies to Muslims, according to them, and Jews, Christians, and then even some others. But it has been reappropriated in the years since the Muslim community first came out with this statement, people of the book been reappropriated by Jews and also by Christians. For me, this sums up my view of Christianity. We are a people of the book. And I'll explain this in a little more detail in a second, but what it means is that we measure everything by this book. There are problems with that because there are sometimes disagreements on, you know, an interpretation of something. But generally speaking, it has preserved the church from all types of deceptions 
all types of evils and so on. The Church of Christ. This is the plumb line. This is how we measure things. This is how we know what is true and what is not true. And I'll confine my remarks to just saying that what comes inside the church, the Lord told me to tell you, and these type of things, we judge it here. Uh, someone recently was just asking me about the gifts of the Spirit, that I believe in them, uh, that I believe that they had, you know, ceased, which is known as cessationism. And I said, no, I believe in the gifts. I said, but when people come here, many people don't realize that I always have been affiliated with a Pentecostal church. However, and this is just something you may want to look up and say, what are you talking about? We would be considered classical Pentecostals. What is a classical Pentecostal? Well, you can do your own research on it, but it means go by the book. Lord told me to tell you. Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard that. And, uh, you know, we have this type of thing. And I'm going to say this, that I believe in my own mind, this is my belief, probably 90% or more of what people say God said, he never said. And how I reason that is that after a while, just like many of you came into Christianity, I had no knowledge of the Bible, so I've been just studying all these years, learning more and more every day. And I would hear people say things, and God said this, and God said that, and then listen to them only minutes later in the parking lot where they didn't realize I could hear what they're saying through the window, complaining about each other, complaining about the church, or even me, didn't realize that I was hearing all this. And that's how I began to reason my way through and say, wait a second, they've got the same Holy Spirit that wrote this book, and then they say God said this, but they act like that. And so I began to dismiss, not the gifts of the Spirit, I began to dismiss, in my mind, about 90% of what people say. That includes their dreams and visions and everything else. But in any case, it must measure up. It must pass muster to this book. It must give testimony, as we just read, to the book, which is exactly what Peter is doing. He's saying this sight of watching Jesus turn into light and the voice of the Father coming down and speaking in Moses and Elijah, an overwhelming sight. He says, we saw that, but he said there's something even more certain that we rely on. And again, it's the scriptures. It's the book. We are, and if you're not, you must become a people of the book. I told you how I was trained um, when my wife and I first came to the Lord in the very first church we went to. And I, I said, it was a Pentecostal church. And we sang from the hymnal like Baptists. I'm grateful that we did because the hymns are deep. And we got some good writers today in the church. I just don't listen a whole lot. I prefer something that's pointing to the depth of the Bible. But you remember, I've told you this story, being a young Christian, both age-wise, early 20s and otherwise, and one of the elders in the church, if I would just say something, he would take his finger, go like that, and he would start turning the pages, and he said, show it to me. Well, of course, not being terribly acquainted with the Bible, I would many times say, well, I'm not sure, I don't know. Then he'd go like this, come here, and he would turn. I remember for some reason, he had turned to Matthew chapter... 13, and the sower and the seed. Good seed all falls on different ground. And at the end of that, he said, which one are you? And I said, I'm the one that's going to bear fruit. That was 45 years ago, so hopefully I was correct. But that's what I chose. But that's how I was trained by an elder in the church years ago. He would purposely wet his finger. And that's what you had to do. You had to 
give a chapter and a text for what you just said. Pentecostal church. That's a classical Pentecostal. That's one that just didn't accept everything that comes this way. You know, Pastor, I had a dream. You know, okay, that's fine. Let's now examine that. Prophecies in the church formerly, some years back, must have dropped off, ooh, beyond 95% when I announced from the pulpit. If you have a word from the Lord, you know, somebody stands up, and God told me to say this to all you. When I announced to the entire church, if you have a word from the Lord, that's fine. Just understand it's my obligation to judge it publicly. All of a sudden, these prophecies just like they ended. Did God stop speaking? Or was God never speaking in a lot of these cases? That's my view. I don't want to attend a church where everybody's saying all this stuff, which sounds more like the Tower of Babel. I'm a person of the book. Now, do I believe in the gifts? Yeah, absolutely. I've been a dreamer since the day I was born. I dream every single night, without exception, every night. I believe in the movement and gifts of the Spirit. I believe in these things. But I believe more so in the book. And that's what Peter is saying. Regardless of our personal experience, we have a foundation that is absolutely certain. And it is the fact that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the Scripture came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so with that in mind, I suggest very strongly, very strongly, that you become a person of the book. I don't know, unless I was to interview all of you personally, I mean individually, one by one, I don't know what your personal habits are. But my dear friend, if your habit is not to read the Bible on a daily basis, you better start yesterday. Because the deception is growing like a true malignancy. Now, the last two weeks I've been spending trying to catch up on that. All right, who's the latest on the scene? I haven't studied it in a few years. And it's frightening. I won't mention his name, and I could, but I won't. A man who's on the scene, he's been on the scene before, and he's a miracle worker. He raises the dead. He does all these different things. Those are the claims. Not to mention that he's divorced his wife, which is something to begin with. The second thing is that there's been many allegations on his sexual perversions, orgies, which includes his wife, men, women, all this stuff. Now, those are allegations, but they seem to have a lot of credibility, as I've read up on them. Then, and this is just this past week, he's in Brooklyn touting this revival, people laying all over the floor, and, and again, all this stuff. I have no problem, if I was to mention his name, and maybe in the future I will, but I have no problem saying, this is a false teacher. That's not really germane to the subject at the moment. But how do I judge that? How do, or, you know, some professing Christian would say to me, as they do to others, who are you to judge and whatever? <laughs> I'm a preacher of almost a half a century experience. And the word is here. So we know right from wrong. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. If I was an adulterer, and I'm not, and I'm not saying I couldn't be, I'm just saying I'm not. And I'm pointing my finger at you today on the seventh commandment about not committing adultery. If you were smart, you'd be saying, but wait a second, this is the very thing that you practice. Well, in my mind, see, I'm a fair person. That would be a very good point. But I'll leave that alone. What I'm just trying to point out the obvious is that the preacher has got to be above these things to be a leader. Any leader in any field has got to be out in front. We must be a people of the book. I have found that the Bible is so fascinating 
And as I'm getting older, I can say it this way, there's almost a bit of an anxiety that I experience when I read the book because I realize I never quite did take in all of this ocean of information and revelation and the realization that I never quite will. I have stepped up my Bible reading, but I'll never be able to cover all this information or revelation, and neither will you. So if you're not a person of the book, you start yesterday. The excuses, they are no longer valid. Why are we a people of the book? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You're very familiar with this, I'm sure. We just read in 2 Peter 1.21 that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, in 2 Timothy, we'll go to chapter 3. And in the midst, and we've gone through these chapters before, in the midst of explaining what it would be like in the last days, listen, inside the church, that's what the context reveals to us here. What we're about to read of chapter 3, you read chapter 3, it's wedged in between chapter 2 and 4, obviously, but the context is the church, just like ancient Israel. The prophets weren't speaking, uh, well, I mean, most of what they spoke was to the people of God. They spoke about other nations too, but they spoke mostly to the people of God. So this is what is happening. This is what's going on, and this is what's going to happen if you continue on that course. So... The Apostle Paul says to Timothy in verse 15, in chapter 3, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. And let me say this again parenthetically. This is where parents, we must pray. We must pray, and I am. We must pray for parents that they awake out of the darkness who are not bringing their children to hear the Word of God taught. Now some of you are, and that's obvious because I see you and your children. And some are not. And we know the great falling away. We need to pray so that either your children, your grandchildren, my children, my grandchildren will be able to say that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee, well, the scriptures, able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Once again, the same emphasis that Peter has, the apostle Paul has. From a child you've known the holy scriptures. Not to diminish the administration of the Holy Spirit. He says Holy Scriptures. Because anybody can say, the Spirit told me this. What Spirit are you talking about? The Spirit that I know wrote that book. And when someone says to me, and they did some years back about, this is a true story, that we don't need the book anymore because we have the Holy Spirit. I said, that doesn't even make sense. The Spirit wrote the book. And you're saying that we don't need the book when the Spirit says we do need the book? It just didn't make sense. The scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now listen, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And most of you here know that means by the breath of God. It's identical to what Peter said, what we just read. Men did not will the scriptures into being. They did not come up with a worldview. They were moved on by God's spirit, by God. Write these words. And so we see this, and I've been through this with you before. I don't have time to do it again now. Thus saith the Lord. God said, God spoke. God would say in a couple of places, I have put my words in your mouth. And on and on. The book is constantly claiming to have been written by God. And the only book, I might say, that points us in the right direction. The only book. It's not one among many. It's the only book that points us in the right direction to the one true God. Because it was written by the one true God. 
The Holy Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, so we know what we should believe, for reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly or thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So we are a people of the book because of 2 Peter 1.21, 2 Timothy 3.16. But this one here I want to share with you. This is actually one of my favorites. Just turn back just a tiny bit to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, chapter 2, rather. Look at verse 13. Speaking to the churches, the church of Thessalonica. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received, notice the phrase here, the word of God, which you heard of us, that's mere men, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. In other words, just to say it very simply, it works. I'm a pragmatist, but not in the sense of how some use the word, meaning anything that's working in the church to draw a crowd and everybody had a good time and people were laying all over the floor. Hey, it worked. I'm not that type of pragmatist. I'm interested in applied theology, that if I pray, I get answers. I'm thinking of my brother sitting in the back of the church there, hasn't yet to share his testimony, who just a few weeks ago, really, just a couple short months ago, was losing his eyesight. And just selected a few of us, according to what he shared with me, that we would pray for his eyes. So those of us who prayed, we did. Goes to the doctors, and they're standing there in absolute disbelief, saying that this can't be possible. Now he's gonna tell his own story when we have opportunity. This can't be possible. And according to the doctors, something that goes from here to here, well, he still wears glasses, almost normal. But they were saying, this is one in millions that this could happen. How did it happen? Through prayer. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested when the doctors can confirm it on a sheet of paper. This has happened quite a few times in ministry. I'm not interested in the other things that, quite frankly, have the touch of seducing spirits, evil spirits, in the church, and no one seems to have discerned them. And i just say this one more time. Of all the responsibilities that I have, one is to judge. So if you've been to a church where the pastor says, I don't judge anybody, then get out. Now, if you've been in a church where the pastor is judgmental, get out. Because either one is not good. But the pastor is supposed to be an expert in the Bible. says, Whoa, wait a second, wait a second. You know, and healing, of course, is in the Bible. I mean, thank God for what he's done for you. We are a people of the book. And this one here is actually one of my favorites beyond the more frequently used 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21. He says, we're apostles. And when you receive the word of God, the word of the one true God, the one who's created this universe, those trees out on the hill, this earth, stars, the sun, the moon, when you receive the word of God, which you heard it from us, you received it not as the word of men, of just men. You received it as it is in truth, he says here in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. The word of God, which actually works in you. It's working in you. Now look at, I just mentioned this because this is how I operate. I want to see the word of God work. It's not enough for me just to read words on the page, which really anybody can do. And I'm sorry to say most professing Christians do. They're just words on the page. I want to see God work. 
I want to see God touch, not just in healing, in saving people and transforming lives. Not just having some superficial association with the Bible and the church and whatever that means, but being able to stand up and to testify, as Peter did. And then go, as Peter did, also to say that the foundation that we have and where we got this from was from the book. We are a people of the book. So we have three verses here, three references anyway. Second Peter, Second Timothy, and First Thessalonians. The book, the Bible, as men were moved on by God the Spirit, God said, I'm putting my words in your mouth. Write these things down. And they did. So we should hold this Bible, the Bible, in the highest esteem because it was written by the mind of God or the word of God. And it gives us, listen, our only rule. I want you to underscore the word only rule for faith and practice. Many of us came from Christian traditions, which these churches, some of them, still hold on to it. If you left and you became born again, your family may have asked you, why did you leave such and such a church? I was asked that question. And my answer to that question was that I didn't actually really leave under a protest. I just found Jesus. I don't really like labels at all, I'll be honest with you. I know that they're necessary to some degree, but I don't really care for them. I just, what are you, somebody says, I'm a Christian. But I know that's too simplistic nowadays. You have to be a little bit more definitive. But this is what we need. We need to become a people of the book. And so we do this by understanding God wrote it. And that anything that's in it, and everything that's in it, anything and everything has some importance. It's not that every scripture is equal. Being born again like the thief on the cross, being forgiven at the last hour of your life, last few minutes of your life, is certainly more important than a healing. But they're both in the book, and they're both important. Just relative comparison, that's all. When you read the book of Proverbs, it gives you all this wisdom towards life. The fear of the Lord. I read those scriptures to you last week and so on and so forth. They're there for a reason. God doesn't want you to fall into a pit. God doesn't want you to fall into a hole. God doesn't want you to certainly lose him and so on and so forth. I'm sitting eating my supper last night and one of my sons had the news on and it's irritating me. Because whatever is causing the people of the world to be afraid is not causing me to be afraid. I'm not denying its reality. I'm just saying the book says how God will provide for his own. The book says that in the most impossible circumstances, God has always come through for his people, and on and on. That's what the book says. And so we are a people of the book. And if you decide to, I mean, obviously many of you attend here regularly, but if this is going to be your church from here to your grave, just realize that we are a people of the book. And that your pastor will be reminding you, as I will in a few minutes at the end of this message, Read the Bible, which is to your advantage, because anything I say from this pulpit or I say to you in private, your responsibility as well as your privilege is to go home and look it up, because I'm not saying that I am infallible, but I am saying that this book is. So you go home and you look it up. That's an advantage for you. You have a preacher or a pastor who wants you to go home and look it up. I'll just simply say there are pastors who don't. That's all. There are pastors out there, preachers. Remember, I've been out of my business a long, long time. I've told people, close the book. There's no work getting done through this book. This is a true story. I'm here. I've got the Holy Spirit, and I'll tell you what's going on. A couple of my friends in that meeting had better sense, and they walked out. That's what's going on out there in these other churches. Some of them. 
No, I'm saying open the book. I'm saying read it as much as you can, memorize it, spend as much time as you can with it. We believe in verbal inspiration. That means the very words that are on the page, God gave it to the prophets, the apostles, and then it's Christ, who is the word of God. Verbal inspiration. We also believe in what is known as plenary inspiration. That means not only like some parts of the Bible were written by God, but every part of it. All 66 books, all 31,102 verses, all 788,000 and so many other words that are in the Bible, every one of them is inspired of God. If you believe that, if you believe that, it's going to change your attitude towards this book. You're not going to have many days where you say, oh, gee, you've been forgetting to read the Bible now. How long have you been forgetting to read the Bible? Oh, it's been, I don't know. What are you reading? What are you listening to? What is going into your mind? Well, this is what you want, the Bible to keep washing your mind, reminding you of the hope that we have, and so on. This is what you want. We believe in verbal inspiration. We believe in plenary or plenary inspiration. That means everything in here, from the beginning to the end. Then we have something known as the canon of Scripture. And just to give you a simple explanation, the word canon comes from a word that means a reed, which would be the same as a plumb, a plumb line. It's how books were measured as to what was actually inspired of God and what was not. Now, that's a subject all in itself. So I'll just give you, again, just as a little primer. But there were certain parameters used from the beginning about what belonged in the Bible, make it 66 books, and what did not. For instance, we read about the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church at Laodicea. But that's not in the book because it wasn't considered to be inspired or maybe they just lost the letter altogether. Didn't matter. Even if the Apostle Paul wrote it, even if it had his signature on it, it wasn't considered to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they looked for a few things, among which, number one, was the book written by an apostle or a prophet? All right, so they were. Number two, what was the effect that had on the people? A little more subjective. But if you've been around this a little bit, or if you've only listened a couple of times to a preacher and you don't know much about the Bible, I would contend that you can actually tell the difference. I mean, even if you didn't know much about the Bible, you can tell that there's something coming out of one preacher that uses the Bible and not the other. Now, if you gravitate towards that, because what you really have is a very fancy motivational speech, well, maybe you wouldn't know the difference. But you will once the Bible is spoken. People who hate it recognize the difference. Let me say it to you that way. I had a situation years ago, some Bible college students listening to one of my tapes. Bible college students. All of them were to go into ministry. As far as I know, they all did. Four of them in the car. One had attended our church, so for Bible school. So I put in a cassette at the time from my pastor. The three students were appalled at what they heard. He can't say that on a Sunday morning. I remember, I'm preaching the Bible. Because what they were taught, now I don't know what's become of them or the churches they pastor. What was taught then and is still being taught now is that there's certain things you can't say as we're getting the seekers coming in. Now, if you're seeking Jesus, you're in the right place. If you're seeking a motivational speech, not so much. Steve Harvey will be on later. Listen to him. Seekers. These kids were arguing with him that your pastor can't say that on a Sunday morning because their teachers at the Bible school level were saying, we don't do that. You don't sing hymns. Now, this I know for a fact was stated to this, actually it was the same person, by one of the leaders in the denomination I used to belong to. You can't sing like that anymore. You've got to make it upbeat and modern and whatever. It was coming from a guy who's my age. 
And I shake my head. The hymns have tremendous depth. If you're interested in the Bible, you know, you could judge me on this one here and say, wow. Well, I happen to like music that glorifies God, as Bach said. That all music was designed for two purposes, to glorify God and to refresh the spirit of man. I'm simply saying, if it gets down to music, the world has some pretty good musicians. And it can move you emotionally, but it's not going to do you one bit of good. And it may do you a whole lot of harm if you're listening to that in copious quantities. Was it written by an apostle or a prophet? Yes. How did it affect the people? This is one of the ways they were seeing how the canon was put together early on in Christianity, as well as Judaism. How did it affect the people when it was spoken? And then there were some other hallmarks that they used as well. I won't take you through that now. We have studied it on a Wednesday night of how they knew. But the one thing that I do want you to know concerning the canon, how did they know which books? Well, the supernatural intendants of the one who wrote it. In other words, at the very end of everything, it wasn't man that said, this goes, that doesn't, that stays, that goes. It was God guiding them even into that arena by the Holy Spirit whom wrote the book. Those are some of the standards. And that's very, very brief and dealing with the subject very lightly. Listen to this. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that made it up. That's J.I. Packer, famous theologian, modern theologian. God did it. This verse, which I've used recently, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Well, what's the picture? It's an easy metaphor. The world is a dark place, and there's a lot of deceptions. Someone has once said that the winds of the devil don't blow long in one direction. He's always changing his tactics. Anything to divert us from two things, not only reading the book, but obeying it. Or making up our own theology, which is contradicting God's word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And if you'll notice, I'll point it out to you, what we read before in 2 Peter. He says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy Whereunto you do well if you take heed as unto a light that is shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. What's he saying? He's just saying the same thing you find in Psalm 119. You would do well to take heed to this book. It's shining in a dark place. Remember this also in John chapter 3, that Jesus said one of the reasons that men don't come to him is because they don't want to be brought into the light. For instance, let me put it to you this way. It'd be easier for me to have continued on the path I was on many, many years ago, which would have manifested itself Friday evening by taking a handful of chicken and saying, here, tell me now, I want a drink of water. That was the old me. The new me doesn't do that. I just stayed calm. I said, I just want a drink of water. And she got it up, chewing it all. The old me would have said, you want chicken? Here's your chicken. But we don't do that anymore. Why? because we do well to take heed unto the word. Love your enemies. Uh, don't repay evil with evil. That's in the book. Look, at, I want to tell you right now, I'm not prone that way. Are you? No. Oh, all my life, if they do bad to me, I do good to them. Really? <laughs> that wasn't my way. And it wasn't you, some of you, holier-than-thou people. You get touched with evil, you repay with evil twice as much, three times as much. You make sure they never do it again. Now we're like sheep in the midst of wolves. Ah, the good news is the Lord is our shepherd. Amen. 
He's out there. They don't use staffs and crooks as much as they use a lever-action rifle. They see a wolf, modern shepherds. They still use the others too, believe it or not, stones. End of the wolf. You can go about your grazing because he's leading us beside the still waters. He's leading us into green pastures. We're being led by the Lord through the book. Through the book. Again, let me just say for emphasis, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. How much of this Bible do you know? Well, you know, I'm not that smart. And God never said, only smart people can read this book. Well, I'm not that well educated. I was a high school dropout. I went back. We can make excuses all day long, but God wrote the book for you to read so that you can say, this is the book that's guiding me through life. And more than that, that we can testify, as Peter does earlier, and say, we didn't follow fables. We were eyewitnesses. We saw the works of God. Here, let me tell you this too. So we're in the 21st century, and some don't say it, but they act as though the power that God manifested all through the book is no longer around. Now, they don't say that, and they're probably not thinking it consciously. I'm mainly thinking about church leaders now. So we're going to do it differently. There's a lot of ways to attract you. Well, not you, but people. And that's what the Bible calls through wantonness and lusts of the flesh and promising you things that simply aren't true or they're not really from the hand of God. There's a lot of ways to attract a crowd. But what I want to say to you is this. It's very encouraging if you think about it. The God that you read about in the book of Acts, he's still the same. And it is unfortunate, by the way. So we had this, forgive me if you don't like my parlance. We had this sing-a-thong that went on for a few weeks down in Kentucky. Revival, revival. There was no preaching. Now, there was some prayer repentance. And I'm not going to say it wasn't God. I'm not making any judgments. I'm just saying I know one thing that wasn't there. There wasn't any preaching of the Word of God. And there has never been a revival ever without the preaching of the Word of God. In any case, you have all these things. And then people were flying in as they do from time to time when these things happen, so that they had to stop this movement, this singing, you know, and the young people gathering, which is, in my mind, a good thing, because the town couldn't hold the people. I always think to myself, oh, there's something happening there in Canada, and something down there in Florida, something down there in Texas, and we got to fly there? I want to tell you that the God of times past is the God of these mountains that we live in. Amen. Now, I believe that. And I was just reading a small portion of a book that a local pastor wrote. It's a good book. Uh, he's just sent it to me. No note on it or anything. Just sent it to me. It's a good book. He's down there in Rensselaer someplace. I met him years ago. And he was sharing something that I could definitely identify, since we're in the same area, how he had been praying for revival for 40 years, and it's not come. Well, I mean, like the way we read about it in history and in the book, in the Bible. But he made the point that I'm making to you right now. It's because it is my belief. That doesn't affect my faith in God. He's still the same. God is still the same. So let's personalize it. You heard a little bit of my troubles that I shared with you for prayer. And that's just, believe me, not even the tip of an iceberg. I chose to be here rather than laying in bed. I don't expect any reward for that. It's just, this is my duty. And I wanted to be here, both. But no matter what you're going through right now, and we could trade stories, and if you like, we'll have a contest to say, okay, you win. You got more troubles than I got. Is that really necessary? Or is it just necessary to say that God covers everything? His promises. Standing on the promises of God. That God can meet you, is willing to meet you, and here's the thing, that he wants to show himself strong. We read that in the Old Testament. 
we read the fact that God's eyes are running to and fro, back and forth, throughout the earth to find the one whose heart is perfect towards him, that he may show himself strong in the behalf of that person. One person. Now you have 5, 10, 15, 50, 500, 5,000. That's even better. But his eyes are right here in this hamlet that we live in right now to show himself strong on the behalf of that one whose heart is perfect towards the Lord and do the things, the exploits. That's what I want to see before. Because, you know, when I, I assume when I go to heaven, I won't have to say anything. You know, it's just going to be like, what's well, heaven? I won't go approach the throne and say, I know it's heaven, God, but we need a revival. Because some of the saints here, they're not happy. There's all the people over here, some of them are not singing, and the angels got issues. I'm under the deep impression that we won't be dealing with these things in heaven. So we don't need the power of God necessarily then. We need it now. We need God to show himself strong, and he's willing, but the condition is the heart being perfect towards him, believing that he is willing to do it. It's not like you're asking him for something and God is saying, let me think about it. I don't know. I don't know if I want to show you how strong I am. I don't know if I can show you how I'm going to blow through all the events of this world and establish my kingdom. I want you to know, I was reading this yesterday as well, when Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel had to interpret the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, a mighty warrior king, Nebuchadnezzar saw his own kingdom, a head of gold, a chest of silver, the abdomen of brass, part of the legs, and then iron, and iron mixed with clay, and the kingdoms of the world, and so much of it's come to pass already. Then he says, and thou, O king, saw a stone cut without hands, no human hands, that came and crushed the feet, the final kingdom, which we believe to be a revived Roman Empire. It crushed the feet. Then he says, then all the kingdoms, they were like the chaff that the wind blows away. And he says, and the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. That's what we have in this book. I watch the news. I don't watch it. I read it. All day long, I'm reading it. What you know, I know. But then I go here for good news. That God is now working. I'll finish with this today. In the times of these kingdoms, which is the ten toes of what we believe will be a revived Roman Empire. We can go through that some other time. That Christ himself will crush it and crush all the kingdoms that ever came before it. We read in the book of the Revelation, for the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Basically blowing history away. And we pray, we're taught, thy kingdom come. And guess what? Regardless of the situation, which we were told about by the scriptures, the book. Anyway, what we're going through right now, it's all written that through that, God is working out an eternal plan. His kingdom will come. Now ask me when. I don't know. Or if you come back next week and I've had a dream, it's coming on Wednesday. Yeah, you laugh. But in the church that I pastored in the Bronx, the building that we got, the guy that took my place had a guest speaker come in in 1988. 88 reasons the rapture is going to happen in 88. That should have been like a gimme right away. Like, I'm not reading this book. I actually came to my mail too. My secretary gave it to me and said, that's good. Right in the trash. I never read it at all. I don't care who writes it. I don't care if the devil himself signed it. It goes right in the trash. It is trash and it was trash. But we are moving right now, so to speak, in space towards the kingdom of God, which is coming. And he's establishing it all through these events that he told us about in the book. 
so much more so, we need to be people of the book. Let me finish the story. So the speaker gets up. He says, the Lord has, this is a true story. The Lord, because I know people who were there. The Lord has revealed to me the rapture is going, this is Sunday morning. The rapture is going to come on Wednesday. <sighs> that was my church. Not when I was there. That character wouldn't have lasted. He wouldn't have been called in the first place. But you make a statement like that, I would just shove him aside and sit down. And undo everything that he just said. Now, one was a person I know very, very well, and she told me the story. I said, oh, come on. You know better than that. Well, he sounded, listen, he sounded so sincere. You ought to know better, and I hope that you do, that sincerity is not the mark of truth. Some people are sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. This is why we must be a people of the book. Let this guide you. It is written. Matthew chapter 4. Satan comes to Jesus. If you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. I know that you're hungry. Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord. It is written. If Jesus could say it is written, why won't you? Well, your pastor's going to. It is written. If you be the son of God, cast yourself down because it is written. Satan's clever. See how the winds change of Satan? Because it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus says, it is written again. It's written in another place. So you're misquoting the scriptures, Satan. And then, of course, the last temptation, there on the Mount of Temptation in Matthew 4. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you all. I've heard these stories. I know most of them are engorgements of the truth, but some, I think, are true. We hear of these rock stars signing a compact with the devil so they could be great guitarists or something. I don't know that all that's just baloney, but I think there are some people that have done that. Just bow down and worship me. Let me tell you something colloquially, conversationally. Satan's a loser. You're going to join hands with Satan? No, you're not. But God is God, and his word comes to pass. Everything that he says comes to pass, and we are living in it right now. Become a people of the book. Become a people who know how to seek their God through the book. And if you do, you will be saving yourself a lot of misery and hardship, both temporal and then, God forbid, eternal, if you know the book. Now, here's the thing. You can't just read it. God requires for us to obey. That's the hard part. Seek me with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so on. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I'm a man. You know, give it up, right? I'm a man. These are excuses. And yeah, whatever, steal, lie, whatever, it's wrong, it's wrong. And God is not going to open up the book to you when you're disobeying him. But we want to be compliant. Then there are showers of blessings, and no weapon formed against us will prosper. Nothing. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Father, we thank you today that we have the book. You gave it to men and they gave it to us, but it was all from your hand. Help us to be noted here in Amsterdam, New York, that we are a people of the book, that we judge all things by the book. What saith the scripture? Twice the apostle Paul said that. What does the scripture say? Help us to be of that mind, regardless of what other people professing Christ think. They don't like it, whatever. Just help us to be people of the book. Now today, God, we just humble our hearts before you because as I so often say, you know, I know for me, I don't want to be a pretender and I don't want to be a poser. I want to be the real deal. 
And I know, God, that I need your spirit and your help to do that. Because when you test, and you test, and you chasten, it can be real difficult to make up a mind to keep going forward. But that's how you've done to every single one of your saints from the beginning of time. Help us, Lord, to have a mind that will endure the temptation, endure the stress, the antagonism, and all this. Because your word says, if we will resist the devil, he will flee. Sickness will flee. Depression will flee. Anxieties and fears will flee. False doctrines will flee, and so on. Help us, God, to be a people of the book in the sense that we not only read it, but we apply it. And we take what comes our way from men who talk about us, whatever they say. So what? Help us to have the spirit to be bold, not obnoxious. God, help us to be a people of the book. When we sing, we'll be able to sense the presence of Christ. We give you praise today, God. We give you glory. We give you honor. For as your book says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Great is the Lord. So if you would stand with me this morning, I'll just simply say that no matter what you're up against, you still keep going forward. No matter what you're up against, you always believe the word of God. You always believe what God has said. Then he proves himself to be God. Not in an academic sense, but in a reality sense, like my brother's testimony with his eyes. He's here today seeing, because prayer was made, and the doctors are saying, this is one in millions. Well, for me, that's what I want to see. God show himself strong as he has in history past. So Father, we just thank you for another Sabbath, Christian Sabbath, another Resurrection Sunday. And we bless you. Continue to heal the sick. And we have a few in this church, including the pastor and his mom and his wife and others. Just ask you today, Father God, in Jesus' name, show yourself strong and help us to understand our part in believing and obeying. We give you all the praise, all the glory and all the honor. This week, remind us to love you with everything we have, all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind and all the strength, and also to love one another. It's in these things that we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me this morning? Amen. Amen.